0: 11 months ago, Anthony Albanese was elected to become the 31st Prime Minister of Australia. Just 12 seconds into his victory speech, taking priority of place over everything else he would describe in his 19-minute manifesto, he ominously spoke 11 words that promised to divide Australia and damage our democracy. 11 words described a three-part strategy to dilute the political power of the average voter. Eleven words promised a fourth permanent power in addition to the lower house, the upper house, and the courts. Just eleven words warned those paying attention about the coming campaign to add a whole new chapter to the Constitution, to hand extraordinary new powers to an activist judiciary, and to rewrite the Australian history books to suit the rent seekers of the racial grievance industry. What are those eleven words? What is the three-part strategy to divide and conquer? What can you do to stop the radicals from forever changing our Constitution? Well, stay with me for this episode as I answer those questions with my special guest. I'm Dave Pellow, and you are watching The Church and
1: State Show. May all that you stand for, and that we stand for, be preserved under the providence of God for the happiness of mankind. The
2: trouble is caused by unthinking people who carelessly throw away ageless ideals as if they were old and outworn machines.
0: But it is the values of individual liberty, equality before the law, and the supremacy of people over the state to which we can always with confidence return as a powerful and uniting force.
1: Australia is not a secular country. It is a free country.
0: In just a few minutes I'll be joined by the former Special Minister of State in the Keating Labour Government and former Commissioner of the Australian Charities and Not-for-Profits Commission, Gary Johns. He's now serving as the Secretary of a national campaign to promote the no response to the coming referendum on another Canberra Voice. But first, let's review the 11 words with which Anthony Albanese revealed his radical agenda to fiddle with Australia's constitutional foundation. I begin by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land on which we meet. I pay my respect to their elders past, present and emerging. And on behalf of the Australian Labor Party, I commit to the Uluru Statement from the
1: Heart and yeah. Pole.
0: And I say to my fellow Australians, thank you for this extraordinary honour. Tonight, the Australian people have voted for change. With those words, Prime Minister Anthony Albanese revealed that his agenda is every bit as radical as Lydia Thorpe's. The Australian people did vote for a change from the uninspiring and disappointing Morrison government, even if they didn't fully understand what they would get instead. Now we're being asked to vote for change again this year, a permanent change to one of the ten oldest, most stable and successful national constitutions in the world. The first of many serious problems with the proposal is that such a radical solution as a whole new chapter to the Constitution is effectively permanent. For all intents and purposes, it will be virtually impossible to undo such a change to the Constitution if it proves to be harmful to reconciliation or closing the gap, or just another trough for Canberra snouts. The so-called First Nations voice is just another bureaucratic entity in a very long parade of bureaucratic Aboriginal organisations, the results of which over many decades have given little to no evidence to support the conclusion that another one will deliver the outcomes every other one has failed to. Most memorably of those is ATSIC, the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Commission. Both Labor and the coalition were in full agreement 18 years ago that the Aboriginal bureaucracy was a failure in its integrity and intentions to deliver better policy, service and outcomes for Indigenous Australians, something we all want, but not at any cost. Although Albanese and the Aboriginal industry could deliver the same bureaucracy they're currently designing without changing the constitution, the strategy is to make this organisation as permanent as both houses of parliament and the courts, no matter how little success it has or how much taxpayer money it wastes. Advocates for another Canberra Voice admit they want to prevent future parliaments from abolishing it, even with bipartisan support. But that is exactly what a consensus of an elected parliament should be able to do with a chronically failing bureaucracy. Organisations which have nothing to fear from democratic elections have nothing to lose if their advice does more harm than good. As the black American thinker Thomas Sowell says, The fatal attraction of government is that it allows busybodies to impose decisions on others without paying any price themselves. That enables them to act as if there were no price, even when there are ruinous prices paid by others. Have you heard the YES activists? complain that the extra Canberra voice is not a third chamber of parliament. They claim that because the additional Canberra voice can't pass or veto legislation, it isn't technically a third chamber. Well, the proposed functionality of a racially exclusive and constitutionally enshrined Canberra voice is incredibly similar to that of the British upper house, the House of Lords. Did you know that the House of Lords also cannot pass or veto legislation, but can slow it down and make representations, provide advice to the government. Its primary function is as a chamber for the revising of plans and policies made in the lower house of the British parliament. There's much more to be said about the additional Canberra voice. And joining me now to discuss a national campaign to promote the reasons for caution about this referendum is the past Special Minister of State in the Keating Government and former Australian Charities Commissioner and now the Secretary of Recognise a Better Way with a PhD in Public Policy, Dr. Gary Johns. Gary, welcome to the Church and State Show. Thanks, Dave. Now, uh, can I get you to introduce um, that group and, and highlight its claim? A lot of people watching will... Uh, be looking forward to some organization for the no campaign and have been waiting for for such a um, an entity to provide some material and arguments and, and strategies going forward so uh, Explain who the group is and uh, what we can look forward to over the coming months.
1: Good. Well, thanks for the opportunity um, look essentially uh, we're concerned citizens uh, pretty experienced ones I might say who realise the damage that uh, recognising Aboriginal people in the constitution with this particular highly political mechanism, this voice, will damage Australia. We think, so we started with the proposition, we think we can help those Aboriginal people who need help, and most don't, a better way. So cleverly we thought we'd say recognise a better way. Now, mm-hmm. Uh, We have three simple propositions. We're saying, look, there is a debate to be had about recognising the existence of a people who were here before the Europeans, pre-1788. And let's have that debate. We would tend to be in the camp to say, it's an historic recognition. You cannot recognise contemporary Aboriginal people in the constitution without giving them special rights. I think, uh, you know, Professor Greg Craven and Julian Lisa Damien Freeman, who are a group called Uphold and Recognise, have now proved it's really not possible to have a contemporary recognition in the Constitution, as I say, without creating group rights, Mm. which would destroy individual equality. That is a major concern. Major one. it's a right that no one else has. But we'll get to that in a minute. So so we've said, let's have that discussion about a form of recognition. So the second point of recognise a better way is to say, well, who are we doing this for? And we say, well, about 20% of Aboriginal people are in big trouble, but about 80% are doing as well as other Australians. And not- so by big trouble, you mean they're experiencing...
0: Uh, negative, adverse outcomes whole, compared to the population average. The whole average. trauma
1: bit. I'll tell you where the figure comes from. About 20% of Aboriginal men have been to jail, which is a shocking figure. It, it's, and they've been to jail, not because they're Aboriginal, because mostly they were convicted of severe crimes, crimes against the person, men, women other uh, and children. So uh, their lives uh, are are in a terrible condition, the lives of their families in a terrible condition. But as high as that figure is, it's only 20% of the Aboriginal population. Smaller proportion for women, Aboriginal women, but if you take the 20% of men out of all of those measures that arise from the census, you know, the social class, education, jobs and so on, magically, you find that Aboriginal people in the 80% are doing about as well as other Australians. So you say, well, hang on, isn't that the answer? 80% of Aboriginal people have worked it out. They have entered the open modern society, which is the only one there is, and we didn't make it. It's, It's the one we all swim in. They've worked it out. So for us, we think we should have Uh, a conversation, if you like, with the 20%. And the third point is, why do we need this big new national committee and a new bureaucracy? We've already got established Aboriginal organisations. Aboriginal people are probably, uh, in a proportional sense, the most politically organised group in Australia. Um, They started in the 1930s, 1940s, 1950s and have built uh, considerable Aboriginal associations, political and, more recently, service associations, say, in the health area, and good on them. The question is, do they get good outcomes because of that? But you don't ignore them. Our proposition against the Prime Minister's proposition of saying yes to the voice is to say, no, 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 no. Prime Minister, you've just got the wrong package. I'm sorry, we too want some form of recognition. We too would like to help Aboriginal people, but only those in need. And we too would like to work with Aboriginal organisations, but the existing ones. Look, fortunately, we have some very strong Aboriginal leaders on our board. and Warren Mundine is our president, mm. uh, but we have a, a, a number of other good, strong Aboriginal people. Can you
0: name who's on the board of Recognise a Bad Way um, for the No
1: well, campaign? Uh, well, okay, uh, so, so Bob Little uh, is a Melbourne-based, mm. but he was, he was in Alice Springs and Ian Conway is uh, in Adelaide. He, he used to be uh, out north of uh, Alice Springs. Peter Gibbs is out at uh, Dubbo. Uh, Yodi Batsky's up in Cairns, uh, she's of uh, Torres Strait Island and an uh, and Aboriginal descent. And then there's uh, uh, John Anderson, former Deputy Prime Minister and myself. So that's the board. What's the website? Uh, recogniseabetterway.org.au So we aim to make all okay. of the arguments available to the public, but we aim essentially to say to the public. We understand this area well and we're giving voice to Aboriginal people as well, who in the no camp, they do not want this big new beast sitting in Canberra looking over everything that government does. Mm. I think one of the
0: biggest points to highlight in understanding the case for or against the referendum question is that You highlighted that only 20% of Indigenous Australians are experiencing different outcomes in key areas compared to the population average. Uh, It seems that fiddling with one of the ten oldest constitutions in the world, with one of the most stable democracies and cohesive societies, a, a destination of choice for people fleeing racial tensions and persecution, It it seems like the nuclear solution that we need to fiddle with the Constitution when we're led to believe all Aboriginals experience adverse outcomes uh, compared to a population average in Australia of non-Indigenous Australians. Uh, But you're saying, uh, based on incarceration statistics, which is extraordinarily high, that there's only about one in five Indigenous Australians who are actually experiencing worse career, health and social outcomes to the average Australian.
1: Yeah, yeah. You know, uh, the phrase closing the gap, uh, Prime Ministers every year make their little speech. Hmm. I say little speech, I am demeaning it because uh, there's not much closing happening. The only closing of the gap that's happening is between, if you like, Aborigines who are doing okay and the rest of Australia who are doing okay. They're all doing fine. The real gap is between the minority of Aboriginal people and all other Australians. Mm. And that gap is not closing and will never close, while politicians think that it's all about politics, it's all about a voice. So the nuclear option, as you say, is this this big beast that uh, the Prime Minister wants to place in Canberra on a permanent basis and give it the powers of, of constitutional backing. And that's it, the
0: nuclear component. That's
1: the nuclear component. It's, Another
0: bureaucracy is, is not nuclear in itself. In fact, it's quite pedestrian. It's been and tried and done dozens and multiple scores of times. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, but it's the enshrining one in the constitution. I, I think one of the rebuttals I heard to the the claim uh, that you and I would agree on that enshrining this in the constitution is insanity. Uh, the rebuttal is, well, we have to because um, other solutions like ATSIC have in the past been undone. And what occurs to me is that the undoing of ATSIC had bipartisan support because it had demonstrably failed. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And so to now enshrine that kind of experiment in the Constitution uh, seems to be
1: the part that is nuclear. Yeah. Yeah. Um The argument on the S side is to say, look, it's not like the uh, Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander Commission, ATSIC, which is abolished, because they're saying, we won't touch the money. We won't be distributing funds, which was a problem. But it's much more powerful. You don't have to have the the, the hands on the money to make sure there's a lot of money going to where you want it. It's the ideology that's the killer. So you'll have... 24 CEOs of Aboriginal controlled organisations who will get to Canberra. I'm telling you, that's the Kalmar Langton model. It's not elected, it'll be the deals done in all the regions. Selected, not elected? Selected. It's designed to enhance, if you like, the present power structures within Aboriginal society. And that power structure is not an original structure pre 1788. It's structures that have built, been built since about the 1980s where usually the biggest bloke got himself to be uh, president or CEO of an Aboriginal organisation or more latterly, a woman. And they hang on to those positions because to be fair, they fought hard for them. So they wanna be the person who goes to Canberra. Now this is the, this is the essential element. If you go to Canberra as the CEO of an Aboriginal organisation, you're under no obligation to lobby other than for your organisation. So if you get elected, you need at least 50% of your constituency. So you get elected from a region of Aboriginal people. So you're doing, if you like, you're always looking over your shoulder properly to say, well, I need to get re-elected here, so I've got to deal with a lot of, say, Aboriginal people. But if you're selected, because you're the biggest employer in the area, you're just gonna look after yourself. The incentive is to keep looking after yourself and your employees because that's That's how you got selected. The organisation that sent you. It is Hmm. a corrupt way of operating. The Constitution, as you know, it just really distributes power among the essential uh, elements of our political society, which is uh, the Parliament, reps and senate the executive government that's the group that elected in a majority but run the place they're the government and the judiciary the courts and then there's the states as well so this voice will have its own it's called a chapter in the constitution now even if it just says very little just says oh there shall be a voice a high court judge in time will say oh, hang on, this has a chapter all of its own. It must be important. So they'll take it very seriously. Uh, You're dead right. It is a nuclear option to put that sort of thing into the Australian Constitution.
0: The notion of the voice, a a euphemistic reference, uh, suggests that there is currently a paucity, a, a lack of committees, and organizations uh, voices on behalf of Aboriginals to Parliament that are consulted uh, for legislation and, and policy development is that the case is there a lack of Aboriginal voice to Parliament currently no
1: no there's not uh, not only that there, that there are 11 members uh, every parliamentary committee Bends over backwards to make sure they hear from a constituency, whether it's Aboriginal or not. Um, governments and government departments constantly consulting with uh, the players, if you like, the, the community groups. You've got to remember, since the 1970s, we all, well, I did, observe this growth of local voices, if you like. You know, environmentalists who first came to light in the 1970s, you thought, well, what hope have these people got? They're just a bunch of ratbags who are making a lot of noise. They are now sitting in the parliament as the Greens, or there are departments of environment. There's, there are constant conversations going on 24-7, 365 days of the year between the parliaments, which are now much more open than they used to be 50 mm. years ago, and government departments, which are much more open to this term stakeholders, right? It's, it's a fairly recent thing, a good thing, that there is no paucity of voice across the entire Australian political landscape, including Aboriginal people. So to have this idea that if only we had a voice is just nonsense. It's just a lie that the voice will solve anything. It's just a grab for power on behalf of one highly organised, highly visible, highly vocal group, that is the present Aboriginal leadership.
0: Let's pull back the curtains from Anthony Albanese's victory speech on election night when he said the 11 words, I commit to the Uluru Statement <laughs> from the heart and heart. That thinly veiled agenda has three or four parts And voting yes to this referendum for a so-called First Nations voice will guarantee we get the other harmful parts as well. Firstly, the Uluru Statement from the Heart must be recognised as a religious-political manifesto. It was the result of a constitutional conference, which was the furthest thing possible from representative of all Aboriginal Australians, which the conference falsely claimed to be. It was invitation only, no tickets were sold, and even the traditional owners of Uluru itself were actively excluded from the conference. That's right. The so-called Uluru Statement from the Heart has no basis for claiming it even represents the traditional Aboriginal owners of Uluru. When I tell you that Senator Jacinta Nampajimpa-Price is one of those traditional owners, you might start to understand why the organisers felt democratic representation of all Aboriginal Australians would be a hindrance, inconvenient to their social agenda. Here she is speaking at the 2023 Church and State Summit Supporters Dinner.
2: We recognise when cultural reinvention and romanticism is exploited for the purpose of an agenda. The exploitation of Uluru as the backdrop of the statement of the heart is one such grand example. The traditional, in traditional cultural terms, Uluru is not a place of spiritual significance for all Aboriginal Australia. It is only significant to those who are responsible for the dreaming stories, creation stories within Uluru. The significance of Uluru similarly only exists in the traditions of specific peoples. That includes my people. Uluru is of cultural and spiritual significance to the Warlpiri people. i tell you this about the connection of the Warlpiri to Uluru to highlight the exploitation of a landmark to which few gathered had any spiritual connection in the pursuit of political power. At the gathering of the 250 signatories who claimed to speak on behalf of all of Aboriginal Australia, there was not a single Walpuri signature on the Uluru Statement of the Heart. Beyond myself, there are many Walpuri who do not support a constitutionally enshrined voice to Parliament, but we were not allowed to use our voices to disagree. But it is the same Aboriginal industry I speak of that leads the exploitation of Uluru, that leads the charge in fighting for constitutional enshrinement of our voice, the gold standard, the bureaucracy of bureaucracies that can never be dismantled.
0: You can watch all of that eye-opening speech at ADH TV now. Profits support this important media ministry. So if the root of the tree is diseased with divisiveness amongst Aboriginals, how is anyone expected to take their claims of promoting racial harmony and healing seriously? But let's take a closer look at the branches other than another Canberra voice.
3: This sovereignty is a spiritual notion. The ancestral tie between the land or mother nature and the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples who were born therefrom, remain attached thereto, and must one day return thither to be united with our ancestors. This link is the basis of the ownership of the soil, or better, of sovereignty. We call for the establishment of a First Nations voice enshrined in the Constitution. Makarata is the culmination of our agenda the coming together after a struggle. We seek a Macarada commission to, su- to supervise a process of agreement-making between governments and First Nations and truth-telling about our history.
0: It is a religious text laden with pagan beliefs like animism and ancestor worship. It literally describes Aboriginal sovereignty over this continent as a spiritual and sacred notion, the land as an entity they are born from, remain attached to, and return to upon their death. The text's supporters agree this religious belief is the basis of Aboriginal ownership of the land. In promising to implement this manifesto in full, this government skirts awfully close to violating section 116 of the Constitution, which prohibits the Commonwealth from making any law to establish any religion, or to impose any religious observance. The most chilling agenda described in the Uluru Statement from the Heart includes the notion of a treaty, as if we are two nations, either at war with each other or aligning against another. We are not two nations, or Albanese would need to change our anthem again from the claim that we are one and free. A 2017 ABC article explains what makarata really means, and every voter should pay attention before making their choice to impose such violence upon our nation. Quote, Macarata literally means a spear penetrating, usually the thigh, of a person that has done wrong so that they cannot hunt anymore, that they cannot walk properly, that they cannot run properly, to maim them, to settle them down, to calm them, that's end quote." Makarata is a complex Yolngu word, describing a process of conflict resolution, peacemaking and justice. It would be a mistake to interpret it simplistically, especially given the bilious behavior of people like Professor Marcia Langton, threatening what she imagines to be terrible consequences like no more aboriginal rituals before meetings for anyone daring to disagree with the referendum question. It is no stretch to draw parallels between the uncivilised, hateful and traitorous behaviour of Senator Lydia Thorpe in the Senate and other public places to spearing Australian society through the thigh, maiming our nation so it cannot walk properly to a future without racial division. She and other blacktivists believe in Macarada more than the lying harlot media will ever admit. And Anthony Albanese, like Lydia Thorpe, is committed to the Uluru manifesto in full. That's what we're being asked to say yes to. How can anyone be reconciled to people that won't accept anything except full surrender and capitulation to their political agenda? and choose to be deeply offended by any democratic differences in opinion about possibly better ways of closing the gap and helping the just one in five Aborigines who don't do as well as the other 80% and all non-Indigenous Australians. Listen to excerpts from Noel Pearson's extensive divisive diatribe on ABC radio recently. He describes people voting no variously as a spectre of a judas betrayal of our country undertakers preparing a grave miserable going low hateful fearmongers prejudiced negative a betrayal comparable to the crucifixion of christ calculating political opportunists chucking indigenous australians under the bus sad opposed to goodwill sneering completely useless destroyers of reconciliation and liars spinning a yarn. There's obviously no room in Mr Pearson's mind for the possibility that anyone could sincerely hold both hopes for racial unity and concerns about the Aboriginal industry's published agenda. Was that meant to be the high road of gracious generosity with which yes campaigners will respond to anyone daring to disagree with their referendum question? then whether Australia votes yes or no, it really will be a spear through the thigh of the nation in a brutal exercise of so-called social justice. Either way, we mustn't allow ourselves or others to be bullied into enshrining another Canberra voice in the Constitution forever. We saw in an earlier clip that at his election victory speech, Anthony Albanese, said that in this term of government, he would deliver the Uluru Statement from the heart in full. When people vote yes to this referendum question, uh, what are
1: they getting
0: in addition to a constitutional voice for Indigenous
1: people? It's, it's a very important question uh, because it's as if we're voting for one thing, which is just a voice pop it into the Constitution, away you go. But that's not what the Prime Minister said. The Prime Minister said, I want the whole Uluru Statement. Now, the Uluru Statement was uh, a piece of poetry, really, that was written by a very small group, uh, probably uh, uh, Marcia Langton, Noel Pearson, um, on a weekend. And uh, they framed it up and said, we should have three things, a voice treaties between Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal Australians and this process called truth-telling and there's another element to it. They also wanted to establish what they call a Makarata Commission and the Commission which would be a permanent Commission will undertake if you like the negotiations for treaties and the truth-telling exercise. So you're voting for something very very complicated. First the voice in the Constitution. If that gets up and with, uh, you know, the, the, the present leaning of the government, there's no doubt you'll get the Macarata Commission, and then you'll get the treaties, and then you'll get the truth-telling. So a vote for the voice is a vote for voice, treaty and truth-telling. And I tell you what, the only difference between Senator Lydia Thorpe, the former Green Senator from Victoria, and Anthony Albanese is the order in which they want those. She wants it to the extent we can understand what she wants. She wants the treaty first, and I think the truth-telling next, and then the voice is a lesser matter for her. Mm. Albanese wants exactly the same thing, just in a different order.
0: That's actually really scary that Albanese and Lydia Thorpe are in lockstep agreement.
1: Unity ticket,
0: unity ticket. Other than the sequence of which it should be done. Yep, absolutely. What are the implications of a treaty and truth-telling. They, they sound innocuous and they sound wonderful. Who doesn't want to hear the truth? Yeah. And who doesn't want to uh, have a treaty? I mean, is the alternative to treaty war?
1: Well, uh, lovely point, because treaties are normally either uh, to settle conflict or you do a treaty with uh, you know, a, a, a fellow country against a common enemy. So how can you have a treaty with a group of people inside a nation, nation with all other Australians. And, and keep in mind that most Aboriginal people are intermarried. I mean, 70% or more uh, marriages um, with an Aboriginal person are with a non-Aboriginal person.
0: Jacinda Price makes a very similar point, that reconciliation has been well established in her parents' Uh, Bess and and her D- Celtic father Dave, yeah. Dave uh, yeah. and and then herself again now with uh, Colin um, very very European husbands but it's, is there is there a negative consequence to this with that without, without Absolutely. Uh, I guess conceding yeah. the point that it's probably redundant and and if not uh, uh, you know seemingly paradoxical uh, what are the negative
1: practical If it is implemented, what happens next? Treaties actually drive people apart. So, if we go to the New Zealand example, what 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 the uh, the, the treaty there has done is initially in 1840, it was meant to settle matters. All right, we would stop the war between the Maori and the British, and and it did. But in 1975, it all got freshened up. Well. You know, shouldn't the Maori sort of have a more contemporary notion of treaty? And every year the Maori come back and say, uh, we think we should own this out of the other, land, water, uh, produce, the outcomes of a wealthy society. What they're really doing is saying, we'll use the treaty to update our demands. If I can interject, it was the judiciary who... Who
0: relied upon this historical treaty to implement their progressive modern vision of society uh, a century or so later, wasn't it? Yes. Yeah, so, so the it was this activist judiciary that was empowered. Yeah. The, by to, the, the, the treaty, the
1: top court in New Zealand said you must read into what you do uh, the implications of the Waitangi Tribunal. Um, so it gets freshened up all the time. It could be you can never have settlement. I think it was Prime Minister Bolger in the 1980s, a Conservative Prime Minister of New Zealand, he, he said to the Maori, okay, um, how about we give you a billion dollars and settle it. Now the Maori were insulted because they don't want to be paid off, ever. They don't want a settlement, they want a refreshment. And, and the cruel thing of this is, I would like to see Maori New Zealand or Aboriginal people in Australia known for the contribution they make not for the amount they can screw out of a treaty mm. and they do make a contribution there are 50,000 graduates in Australia from Abri- of Aboriginal deceit 70,000 of university 70,000 graduates of TAFE uh, and we do see Aboriginal people emerging right throughout you know, the, the professions and the trades they've made it so why would we insult all that achievement by saying, no, 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 you just need a treaty with a white man. That's how you earn your money. That's, that's an awful thing to say to people who, by their own good measure, have done well. I mean, mm. the Pearsons and the Langtons of the world should simply tell the 20% of Aboriginal people that are in strife, how, they, how did they make it? Can you tell us what the trick was? Maybe it was superior intelligence. Well, that's fair enough. They're obviously very intelligent people. But for the rest of us, you know, ordinary folk, can you just tell us how you made it? How come you have uh, extraordinary positions of power and good income in this society, but your fellow Aboriginal people sitting out in Northern Australia are in big strife? Can Can you tell them how it's done and not pretend that if you take power in the Constitution someone else would do that for you. You, Noel and Marcia, have to have that conversation with your people. You can have it privately if you want, it can be face to face, but it's in your hands and the hands of the 80% of Aboriginal people. And all of us who are trying to help to have a direct conversation. Come on, we're talking about. Real people, we're not Mm. talking about identities and groups.
0: Frederick Douglass, uh, famous uh, uh, African-American political philosopher and and activist, uh, was asked, uh, what extra can we do for you to to help achieve uh, equality? And uh, his response was something along the lines of, if you'll forgive me for paraphrasing, you've given us our freedom, now leave us alone. That is the best thing you can do to help us yes uh, just leave us alone um, what is there to fear uh, or, or be cautious of in what is commonly called by the aboriginal industry truth-telling
1: mm. whose truth what truth now truth telling commissions have been established uh, throughout uh, if you like the colonial nations, post-colonial nations in Africa and South America. So if you're in South Africa and uh, you've only recently thrown off the yoke of the white man, it's raw. And uh, African, South African people will have live stories of the effect which apartheid had in their lives. And I think that's a good exercise to get it out on the table doesn't solve problems though, as we find in South Africa. But how does it apply in Australia, when if you like, uh, well, the yoke has never been thrown off, we're still here, you know, the whites are still here. So um, 80% of Aboriginal people have joined. There is no problem, there is no yoke to throw off. So what's, what's going on here? What's this conversation? I think it's, again, it's a buttress to the treaty to say, you're treating us poorly, and we'll use this device, the treaty, to get reparations. Now that's so sad. And we've already had these commissions. Since the, in a different style if you like, the uh, Royal Commission of Aboriginal Deaths and Custody Custody, and the Bringing Them Home Inquiry, uh, we've had five commissions of inquiry right across Australia, mostly led by Aboriginal men and women, into uh, child sexual abuse in Australia. And the stories were told. We've had the truth-telling, and then we had the uh, institutional child sexual abuse Royal Commission, where Aboriginal people, nearly a thousand of them, told their own stories. So we've actually been through the truth-telling exercise, and there have been copious recommendations uh, mainly implemented. Why would we go through that again? If it helped, well and good. If it didn't you wouldn't want to do it all again. So the truth-telling thing uh, has a wrong basis in history, if you like. uh has already been done. It would be very foolish to do this again. And I can tell you, the Macarada Commission would be staffed by the same in-crowd that's failing to save the problems of the 20% now. Very,
0: very good. Well, thank you very much for your time. Just before we go, uh, can you tell us briefly about your, your new book, The Burden of Culture?
1: Okay. Uh, this makes the simple proposition that you won't solve the problems of the 20% unless you have an honest conversation to say some of the problems of those 20 percent resolve or revolve around their own culture okay so if you think resolving matters between people should be done in a violent manner you've got a problem but that is central to aboriginal culture if you believe in payback as a way of settling differences then you've got a problem and that is a central element of Aboriginal culture. Um, if you don't understand the, the the basis and causes say of disease, ill health and you think it's perhaps a, a spiritual thing um, or something that you did wrong because someone was in your care when they fell ill you've got a problem. So it's those cultured, parts of Aboriginal culture that we all threw off in our previous sort of manifestations when we too were ancient people, that we had to relearn. You know, there is a mm. rational basis for disease. There are better ways to resolve differences than payback and suspicion. Uh, and you do it by nonviolent means. Now that's a journey that Aboriginal people have to undertake and it's one that the current Aboriginal leadership deliberately cover up because they're constantly telling us that we should acknowledge culture. What? You want us to acknowledge those elements that are keeping your people Mm. down in penury, in strife? Come on, let's be honest. You have to make changes, the same changes that everyone else has made, especially in the last fifty and one hundred years, with you know women who are who gained their rights, and, and, and more, peace, more, more recently gay people who, who've gained their rights, or whoever. We have now a, a much more open and understanding, a fuller understanding of what it means to be equal citizens. But the Aboriginal leadership are deliberately saying, ah. But you have to leave a lot alone. You have to leave our, our essence alone, except they won't tell us what it is. They just, they just cloak it in this thing of culture, which is now even more ethereal. They call it spirituality. Give us a break. The, the problems of the 20% don't exist in lacking access to Mm. all of the goods that's just that's just a nonsense the access it's there what they can't do is work out how it fits with their own behavior now that's a a difficult proposition but the good news is 80 percent of aboriginal people have worked it out they've they've come to terms if you like and ditched a lot of their old ways just as we ditched our old ways 50, 100, 200, 300 years ago, in, an, in a more enlightened way. Uh,
0: the Burden of Culture is, is a lovely title um, that, that bears a lot of um, provocative conversations. It, yeah, it provokes yeah. conversations in a good way. Gary Johns, thank you very much for your time today and uh, for joining me on The Church and State Show. Great, thanks, Dave. Well, that is it for this episode of The Church and State Show